Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. That would be, I think, the ideal happy person. That he or she takes care of himself or herself and also takes care of everybody else that they can. Mm -hmm. You're listening to the Tuesday People podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Album. The Tuesday People podcast is heard every Tuesday. And just like my visits with my old professor, Maury Schwartz, each week we take on one subject that's critical to having a meaningful life, and we explore it. And today we're going to explore that topic with an old friend of mine who you probably know best as Dr. Phil from the Dr. Phil TV show, the number one afternoon talk show in America. To me, he's just Phil McGraw and a friend of mine, and he's sitting here with us right now. Phil, thanks for spending a little time with us here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm proud to be here. You and I go back a long ways, and uh, probably almost 20 years, and yeah. uh, I've, I've, I've witnessed your extraordinary growth in the fields that you're in and in television. And so today's theme we're sort of following the idea of, you know, you know, the old expression, you are what you eat. You've heard that. Well, I also believe you kind of are who you eat with. You know, spending time, when I would go visit Maury, I used to bring him food every Tuesday. And it really wasn't until probably the 8th, ninth, 10th Tuesday that he admitted to me that all this food that he was always so delighted for that I would bring he couldn't eat anymore because of the ALS, but he allowed me to continue to bring it to him. Right. And I continued to bring it to him every Tuesday because it was part of our ritual of, you know, spending time with each other. And I think one of the things that people are challenged with and one of the things that he talked to me about was, you know, you only have so much time in this earth. You got to make choices as to who you spend your time with and who you surround your world with. How do you determine who gets your time at this point in your life? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I'm a strong believer in is something I call continuity of identification, continuity of ID. What I mean by that is I always consciously, actively 
try and stay connected with who I was in the past. I mean, all the way back to my first remembrances, like at four and five years old, eight, nine years old, 10, 11, 12, all the way through. Because as I sit here today, I'm still the same person that I can first remember standing out in front of a little frame house in the middle of Oklahoma when I was five or six years old. And we grew up, you know, very poor. I didn't feel poor. When you're poor, you don't know you're poor, right? right? right because right. everybody else you're around is poor too. Right. So everybody looks right. the same. You think you're doing pretty good. Yeah, you yeah. think everybody's all the same, but you don't know. So I think you form your way of being and personality. And my father was a really bad alcoholic. And cliche as it may sound, kids of alcoholics grow up very independent. You learn to rely on yourself instead of someone else. So I've always been a real loner in my life. Hmm. We moved almost like we were military, but we weren't. We moved every three years. And so I was always the new kid. I mean, I'd go to first, second, third grade, and then about the time you'd make friends, you move. I was the new kid in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Then you move. And then seventh, eighth grade, then you move. Hmm. So I was always the new kid. So you didn't ever have any long-term friendships. And then with an alcoholic father, which makes you be really independent, you become very self-reliant. And I decided pretty early on, if I was going to be alone, I figured I wasn't a bad person to do it with. So I had to learn to get along with myself. So your company was me, myself, and I. Yeah, because a lot of times that's exactly what it was. Uh, But one of the things I noticed is, and again, this came from my time with Maury, he said to me, you know, when you have a disease like this, you find out really quickly who your friends are and how important your family is because you can have a lot of friends people you used to go to dinner with, uh, they're not coming over at 2 o'clock in the morning to bang you on your back to get the phlegm out of your throat so you don't choke to death. There's only going to be a handful of people you can count on to do that. So now Phil McGraw has a million people want to hang out with him. What's your acid test for people who you will even do that with? No, you're exactly right. And I'm very, very careful. It shouldn't be this way. But when you live out here and when you do what I do, you really do get into a bit of a siege mentality. Mm. That's a terrible way to think about it, but you really do have to be careful who you let inside the gate, literally who you let inside the gate and who you let inside your life. Because people that have access, what they need in order to exploit is access. If they're never around you, it's harder for them to sell a story to a tabloid or to make some claim Claim. or whatever. I don't give people the benefit of the doubt. And I was raised that you do. Mm -hmm. I I was raised in the Baptist church, hellfire and brimstone. God's going to get you. Mm. God's going to get you. It's just a matter of when. But I was taught that you give people the benefit of the doubt. You look for the good in people. And I don't believe that at all. Really? I think that is the most insane proposition that you could ever imagine. Nor do I assume that people are bad. You know, to me, what you do is you meet someone and you begin to gather data. And then when you have enough information to make an informed decision, then you make an informed decision about that person. Hmm. And you make those decisions the same way you learn about yourself. 
you watch what somebody does, and then based on those observations, you make attributions. You assign traits and attributes to that person based on your observations of what they do. I have people that I trust 100% at level one and 0% at level two. Hmm. Like, I have people that I trust 100% as tennis buddies. I trust them 100% to show up every time they say they will, to be a good sport, to play hard, to not argue over line calls or cheat or be a bad sport and slam the ball around or whatever. I trust them 100% to do that. They'll show up, be a good sport, play a good game, have a good time. Do I do business with them or do I go to their home or they come to mine? No, that's never happened. But at the level of tennis buddy, trust them 100%. Well, what's the, how do you get into level two? Level two, you learn about your tennis buddies by the time you spend time with them. Then you get to hear them talk about their family. You get to see how they interact with their children, maybe, if your kids come to pick them up or something, or you listen to them talk about their job, their family, their life. You see them go through a death in their family or a challenge or whatever, and now you have new data. So you say, okay, this isn't about hitting the ball and showing up on time. You get information about their values, and you say, you know, this is someone that I would take the risk of sharing more of my life with. My belief is I trust other people really as a function of how much I trust myself to be able to deal with whatever it is they do. Mm -hmm. I bought an airplane one time. It's just an old little small single-engine buzz-around airplane from a guy. And to say he was a crook (laughs) does not do him service. I mean, this guy was so crooked. He had to screw his socks on in the morning. I mean, this guy was bad news. And a buddy of mine said, how can you do business with this guy? You know he's crooked as a dog's hind leg. How could you do business with him? How could you believe anything he says? And I said, I don't. I don't trust him one bit. I trust myself to be able to deal with him. I trust myself to not rely on anything he says. I trust myself to verify everything he says. Uh I don't trust him at all. I assume the wings are going to fall off this airplane (laughs) until I x-ray the spars and find out that they won't. I trust myself to be able to deal with him. So it sounds like you've got a very good internal uh, radar, and you check it frequently, and you make sure that nothing gets too far in. So... Have you been burned uh, over the years? Was Hugely. There a, was there one example, without names, obviously, or anything, but is there something you could share with us? Oh, that- I'll give you her name and her address, <laughs> and here's her phone number. <laughs> I have been, and they say that good judgment comes from experience, right. and experience comes from bad judgment. I had somebody working for me 30 years ago that embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from me. She looked like Aunt B. You know, she had like five boys, and every time the church door was open, she was there. They were in the choir. She was in the choir. I mean, honest God, she looked like Aunt B. She sounded like Aunt B. But the whole time she was working for me, she was embezzling money. And I found out by the strangest quirk of fate in the world, I found out about it. And I really learned a good lesson. You know, collect data, verify, check, check, check. 
but sure, yeah. And I'm a pretty good read of people. Yeah. But I got burned on that one. How, uh, you remember the movie uh, Meet the Parents with uh, Robert De Niro right. and Ben Stiller? And he has, you're in the circle of trust. Yeah. You're in the circle. You're out of the circle of trust. You're yeah. in the circle of trust. You're out yeah. of the circle. And the circle of trust was about as wide as, as his family. And while that was a comedy, I always think that, well, you know, I know a lot of people who operate kind of on that principle that there's a very small circle that you can get in and that line will forever be, you know, off limits to certain people. So for Phil McGraw, where does that circle of trust get drawn and who gets in? Mine is kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. You know, at level one, it's pretty big. At level two, it gets smaller. At level three, it gets smaller. And then when you get into real vulnerability and real openness and disclosure and transparency, it's pretty small. Is it much beyond your family? Yes, but it's a small group. After 10, 20 years of knowing people, I just know that I have friends that, as the old saying goes, would take a bullet for you. Right. I mean, I've got friends that I can call at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they're pulling their clothes on as they're saying hello. When they right. see it's, it's like, he wouldn't call if he didn't need something, right. I'm on the way. Right. And I'm the same way with them. Uh-huh. It's like foxhole buddies. You know, you've been to the wars together, right. and I know those people. I value them greatly, and when the chips are down, you know they're going to be standing there beside you, yeah. like Maury alluded to. Friends are those people that are coming in the door when everybody else is going out. Right. I'm very blessed to have several of those kind of people in my life. The fact is, there is no foundation, no secure ground upon which people to stand now if it isn't in the family. Nobody, not much in the society or in the workplace or in the culture is going to hold, is going to support you. And if you don't have that support and love and caring and concern in the family, I don't think you have very much. Would you say to people who are listening to us that they need to spend more time or significant amount of time cultivating and making sure that they see those fields of the handful of people? Because... One of the things I've noticed in life is that, you know, everyone says, well, I got only a couple people I trust with Foxhole, whatever. And then you say to them, when was the last time you talked to them? Uh, well, about a year ago or whatever. And, 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 and you realize you're always assuming that they're going to be there for you, but you're spending your time with a lot of people who aren't going to be there for you. And if you really looked at, like, well, who am I going to ask in my hour of need when I when I get that bad prognosis or diagnosis or whatever who's going to be there am i really putting the time in with them to get it back and the answer frequently is no can you talk about that about how people choose to you know i can and i'll tell you where the litmus test is for me i think about it this way it's like if i went out into a pasture you've been to my house and you know how rough the terrain is around there because we live in the canyon and it's just really wild around there. But if I went out into that canyon and I cut out an area out there and cultivated it and put a garden in out there, if I didn't go tend that garden every day, it would be swallowed back up into the terrain in a matter of weeks, right? Mm -hmm, Right. If you didn't go every day and chop the weeds back and water it and tend it, seriously, it would just be swallowed back up into the canyon in just a matter of weeks. You've got to tend it if you want it to grow and flourish. And I think relationships are just that way. 
you can't assume I can leave this for a year and it come back and be the way it was. Now, there are some friends I've got that maybe I don't see them for a while, and within five minutes together, we're right back like we had seen each other yesterday. But in the main, I think you have to be willing to invest in the relationship and invest your time. I said there's a litmus test for me. A real easy way to control a relationship is if you do all the giving. You're always doing something for somebody else. You're taking care of them. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'll fix it for you. I'll handle this. you do this. But you only have a real relationship when you're willing to receive, when you're willing to let someone do something for mm-hmm. you, because then you're mm-hmm. giving up control. You're allowing someone to do something for you, which means you're being vulnerable. You're trusting. Yeah, you're letting somebody do something for you, which means you can kind of feel indebted or you can feel like, well, you know, this is actually a two-way relationship. It's equal footing. That, to me, is when I know I have a real relationship. When I'll let somebody do something for me, I know I've taken the barriers down and this is a real relationship. Mm. Those are the ones that are in that circle where I'll give and get at the same time. And those people, even though we live in different parts of the country, I'll bet not a week or 10 days goes by that we don't talk to each other. We certainly email each other, but I mean actually talk to each other or get together one way or another because we all travel around and stuff. But you have to make the investment in it. Right. Or it gets swallowed up like that yeah. thing on your lawn. You know Chip Babcock. Mm-hmm. He's First Amendment lawyer. Uh, used to live in Dallas, now in Houston. He's one of those people in my life. We probably talk weekly. He's probably at my house monthly, and I'm in Houston, and we get together down there on a regular basis. I mean, we actually make it happen. I've got another friend, Bill Dawson from Dallas. You know, he built a house out here so, you know, we can hang out <laughs> and be together. Lynn Wood, another First Amendment guy, just coincidentally, in Atlanta. You know, he's just in town. We get together. I was just in Atlanta. We get together. It's just always we're very active. We send each other cartoons. We, you know, share articles about stuff. these are stuff. people who are in that circle yeah, for you. Yeah, I guarantee you I could send a message to one of those guys in the middle of a Supreme Court argument, and they would say, Justices, I have an emergency. I need a break for five minutes. They call and say, what do you need? Hmm. I just know that because they've done it. So this leads me to a question that I think is very pertinent for our time, and you've set it up beautifully. Uh, Those guys that you can call in the middle of a Supreme Court trial sound to me like the polar opposite of Facebook friends. And yet we live in a country where many people evaluate their own self-worth, their own feelings about their own value in the world and how popular they are and how loved they are, how beloved they are by how many likes they get, how many retweets of an Instagram photo they get or the rest. And I'm sure with your show and the guests who come on and you see, you see, Phil, many forms of unhappiness on your show. I marvel at you. Uh, I said to you just before we started, how do you even have the energy to go through the rest of the day after doing two shows? Because it's just sad sometimes. You have to give, you know, you have to say, oh my gosh, these people are suffering so much. Don't you feel that one of the reasons a lot of the problems that you end up talking about on the show are rampant are because we're putting our faith and our trust in, in what we think is a community, which is air thin. It's paper thin. It's, 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 it's digital. 
even the word itself, you know, human beings are not digital. Numbers are digital. But you have a digital community that you are connected to, and you're really not connected at all that way. Can you talk about how much that plays in people's unhappiness? It's a total fictional world. It's beyond just being digital. It's such an illusion. It's like the competition shows in singing. Mm -hmm. You know, they say... You can vote 10 times on four different apparatus. So, you know, somebody can get like 40 votes. It could be one weird kid in his grandmother's basement that hasn't seen the sun in three years, but <laughs> you get 40 votes and yeah. you go, wow, they love 40 me. people love me. Yeah. No, one kid that hasn't seen the sun in three months <laughs> decided to vote on you. And he might be part of a faction where he joined up and they agreed to vote for the worst. Right. Uh, <laughs> so it's a joke. Yeah, yeah, you don't know. It's terrible. And I've seen the tragedy of people that have actually taken their lives oh. because of cyberbullying, taken their lives because all of a sudden people started dropping them. They lost followers or people didn't like their post or they criticized them or started actually cyberbullying them by saying, oh, everybody hates you. Why don't you just kill yourself? And some of these young people actually do that because they're not equipped to handle and contextualize that kind of input. I think it's a very dangerous thing. And you know, I've always said that I've never been afflicted with the problem of having the need to be loved by strangers. I've just never had the need to be loved by strangers. I don't mm. get that. I mean, do I want people to watch the show? Of course I do. Do I want them to like it? I wish everybody in America loved it. But it but doesn't your change. Is not tied it doesn't up change it. who I am. I don't feel like I'm a better person if my show gets a higher rating on Tuesday than it did on Monday, and I don't feel like I'm a worse person if it gets a lower rating on Wednesday than it did on Tuesday. I'm the same person Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I do as good a job as I can all three days. And, you know, you might get up and see, well, the show didn't do as well today. And then you look and say, well, you were preempted through half the country because of some breaking news story. Well, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. The show didn't air. Right. But people would get really down about that. I think that's terrible. Those aren't real relationships. Right. Well, why do you think so many people in this country have turned to the value of virtual communities to get their self-worth? Low demand. I mean, think about it. You know, people used to joke about the crazy cat lady on the corner. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that the crazy cat lady lives with 50 cats. She doesn't have to talk to them. She doesn't have to get dressed and go to dinner with them. She doesn't mm -hmm. have to carry on a conversation about politics or anything. She can stay in her robe and her slippers, and she can relate to them at that level. People get on the Internet with these relationships. It's the same reason people have these love affairs with people on death row. They never have to actually engage and perform and interact. It's safe. So you can have, it used to be pen pals, but now it's on the Internet. You mm -hmm. can engage with somebody like that. And you never have to really have human contact. You never have to look somebody in the eye. You never have to carry on a real conversation or prepare a meal for your friend or go sustain a three-hour evening 
where you go walk around the museum, where you go sit in the park and talk. You don't have to do that. Yeah, or or be in a hospital room when somebody's sick. That's or, right. Or, you yeah. just you can just. But then when you expect it back in return, when you need it the most, there's that's nobody when you there. find there's nobody there. There's nobody there. Yeah. And tweeting out like, "Oh, I'm in the hospital. Uh, I feel terrible," and getting back a bunch of sweet tweets. I hope you hope you feel better. Yeah, get back a bunch of heart emojis. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's put yeah. those under your pillow. Right, right. Boy, that'll really make you feel good. Listen, it the internet is good and bad. They call it www the World Wide Web. I call it www the Wild Wild Web. Mm. It's like the Wild Wild West. Yeah. There's no controls over it, but. It's great in so many respects, right? At your fingertip, you know, search engines. I mean, you can pull up the most obscure research and references in a matter of seconds. Our children don't even know what a library is. Right. You have to tell them, no, it's a big building with books in it. They, <laughs> they don't know. But by the same token, a disturbingly high percentage of children encounter a predator within minutes of being on the Internet. They're yeah. getting groomed and don't know it. It's pros and cons, but it certainly is no substitute for real communication, real human contact, and real interpersonal skills. And I think as a result, it's just like for years I dictated hospital records. When you dictate for years, your spelling erodes. Uh And when you are on text and emails, your personal skills erode. Right. Our kids aren't learning some of the personal skills. There's no eye contact. There's no human contact because it's all over the Internet. That's uh-huh. that's the negative. Well, you know, you can't really sit and eat with somebody who you're on the Internet with. And I think it goes back to where we began about, you know, who do you choose to sit and spend your time and eat with? I remember my folks growing up never allowed us to have radio, television, anything else on when we ate at the dinner table, and everybody had to be present at the dinner table. And nope, we didn't eat until everybody was there. My dad was going to be late from work. We waited until he came home. Someone else had a school activity. We waited until they came home. And every now and then, you you know, as a kid, you'd say, you know, can't we just turn the TV on over in the, in the den <laughs> when people had dens, and we can listen to it in here? And, you know... I never understood when my mom and dad would say, this is the time when we form who we are. And who we were around that table, I still, to this day, if I care about somebody, I'm eating with them and sitting and eating. We're at a round table like you and I are at right now, and we're looking across it. And for years, you always tease me about, come on, when you come to L.A., we'll put the feedback on you, field or something. Uh, But, you know, who you trust to sit and eat with and spend your time with is a, is a reflection of who you are. One of the things that I want to say is I've worked with people over the years back when I was in practice or working with groups. I would sometimes have people working on developing their social skills and all, have them do different sort of things. One of the most meaningful things that I ever would give people an assignment to do is before I see you next, I want you to break bread with a stranger. Hmm. Just in some way, go to the mall, go somewhere, and just break bread with a stranger. And it could be as simple as sharing a lifesaver. You know, sitting down on a bench, say, if you like a lifesaver? Right. And you got to stay there while they do it. Or going into a Starbucks or somewhere and say, you know, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee or something? 
could be some older person or some peer or whatever, and just break bread with somebody and converse while you're doing it. And invariably, people came back and told me that was one of the most meaningful things they had ever done. Hmm. That it broke down barriers that they said, out of all the things I've ever done, you causing me to go do that was one of the most meaningful things I've ever done. Hmm. And isn't that strange? Yeah. Well, simple exercise teaches you a lot about who you are. Yeah. Well, I'm really appreciative that we were able to sit with you. Uh, When I ask all of our guests who who come on the program, one question that I asked Maury before we let you out of here, because I found it very instructive how he answered. And, of course, he was dying and was down to his last days. And, And I said to him, okay, you get one day to be healthy again got all your faculties, everything's working, you get out of this chair, you get, but you got 24 hours, and then that's it. Your perfect day, what's in it? For Phil McGraw, if, thank God you've got all your faculties. Uh, but, as far as you know. You know <laughs> you're, you're putting on a good show if you don't. What's the perfect day? What do you do when you get up and take me through it, and how does it end? Well, I hate to sound cliche, but I would spend it with my family and never met a man that said on his deathbed he wished he had spent more time at the office. It surely wouldn't be anything associated with work. But my perfect day would be to take Robin and Jay and Jordan and go probably to the Cayman Islands, and the boys and I love to scuba dive and it's the most unusual environment you can get in on this planet because it's zero gravity and it's so peaceful and so beautiful in terms of colors and different kind of creatures and stuff. And then between dives, you have to have a surface interval and we would just hang out on the boat up there and just look at things and talk and share and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, Robin's not big on boats. So she's watching from the shore, waving. Yeah. Then we would go back and get her and have dinner and hang out on the beach and watch the sun go down. And there's a point at which it hits the horizon and it changes colors in that one instant. And it's just kind of a magical time. And that's how I would spend that day. That's a very humbling time. You really feel the magnitude of the earth when you see that sun hit the horizon in that moment. Sounds kind of heavenly. Yeah, that would be my perfect day. Sounds like a good one. Yeah. Sounds like uh, maybe you've had a few of them in your life, which is a blessing. Phil, can't thank you enough for being part of uh, our Tuesday People community here and for helping us uh, in the early days of this podcast. And and a great friend to me, a great friend to this uh, show, and and just a uh, good, really good person, uh, Phil. And uh, you are, uh, as Jimmy Breslin once said, and I always considered it the highest compliment. I forget who he was talking about, but it doesn't matter. You're a friend behind my back. Yeah. And uh, you're like that. And, uh, and people should know that about you, even though you're blushing. They can't see you, but you're blushing as I say that. But... Uh, it's true, and I thank you for being a friend uh, to us and, and sharing your thoughts with uh, our community here. Well, I take that as a compliment. You mean it, and uh, it means a lot. I appreciate you having me on. All right. It's uh, Tuesday People and the Tuesday Community. 
that we're forming here. I'm your host, Mitch Album. We thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People.